you would this morning, let's go to the tiny book of Philemon there in the New Testament. Just go to Hebrews and hang a left. Of course, we just finished with, I believe it ended up being about a 25 sermon series on the book of Galatians, and I thoroughly enjoyed studying that. And uh, Philemon is a very short book. In fact, uh, next to Second, Third John, it's the shortest book in the New Testament, one of the shortest books in the whole Bible. And I don't know how long we'll be here, but there's a lot here. And um, as you know, I always want to give background. I want to give an introduction to the book. And Philemon is one of those books that if you just read it without any background, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense. And so we want to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, So the book obviously was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, He mentions his name three times in this book. There's never been any doubt about that. But the theme of Philemon is forgiveness. And most specifically, Christians forgiving other brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, there's probably never been a greater piece of literature written on the subject of forgiveness than what we're going to see here. Um, What's interesting to me about Philemon... Philemon is the only book written by Paul that contains no doctrine at all, none. It's a personal letter from Paul to a friend. But within that letter, you see the principles that show us doctrine. And so it all, it really leads to the same thing. I feel like Philemon gives us great insight into the heart of the Apostle Paul as a person, which in turn gives us a glimpse of the person of God. And on this particular occasion, Paul was writing to a man by the name of Philemon, obviously where the name comes from. But Philemon was a wealthy Christian man, and he was a member of the church at Colossae. And Paul had apparently led Philemon to Christ some years earlier, so he was a convert under the Apostle Paul. And uh, Paul indicates in the letter that he was a man of character. He was a good man. He was active in his local church, and he was a man of compassion. Uh, But here's the thing that we're going to talk about today most specifically uh, about the context of this letter. Philemon had a slave by the name of Onesimus uh, who had apparently stolen from Philemon and then run away. And Onesimus seems to have sought out Paul. By the way, this is one of the prison epistles. Paul wrote this letter from prison. And it seems that when Onesimus had run away from Philemon, that he went to the prison where Paul was and sought him to act as a mediator between he and Philemon. Perhaps he knew that they were friends. I'm sure he did. But during this encounter with Paul, Onesimus comes to saving faith in Christ. He wasn't saved. He came to saving faith in Christ. And Paul is writing Philemon to say that he is sending Onesimus back to him and that Philemon is to love and forgive him as a brother in Christ. Now, if you heard what I just said, your, your, your senses probably just heightened because what I just told you was is that a good Christian man owned a slave, and not only did Paul not condemn slavery, but he sent Onesimus back to Philemon as a slave. And now I understand when I say those things, a bunch of red flags automatically raise up in our mind. And so even though this book is not about slavery in the Roman Empire, 
I, I feel like if I didn't address this issue, that as we go through the book of Philemon, this would be the 800-pound gorilla sitting in the room with us as we study the book of Philemon. So I'm going to take this whole message and I'm going to preach on the subject of the Bible and the issue of slavery. The Bible and the issue of slavery. And I hope to do a few things this morning. I want to uh, show you, I want to talk about slavery in the biblical context. I want to talk about it in the historical context. And then I hope that we find application in the sense of what is the church supposed to do when it comes to fighting against injustice and reforming society? How do we do that? And so I, I hope to look at those three things. Nothing controversial this morning. No, no hotbed topics. We're not going to get any deep water this morning. Uh, y'all know better than that. But listen... The truth never fears a challenge, never. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, When we we read this, we we ask the question, how is there a good Christian man who owned a slave and Paul didn't have anything negative to say about it? Well, I also want to approach this question with another question. And that is, and you can actually raise your hand on this because I am curious to know, how many of you in here have heard either a single sermon or a series through the book of Philemon? Anybody? I haven't even. Um, Now, I think part of that is just merely because of the size of the book. I mean, you know, if somebody had walked in on a Sunday morning in the last six or seven months, they would have heard a message on Galatians, and for the rest of their life, they could have said, I heard a message on Galatians. Wasn't that great of a message, but I heard one. But... You know, Philemon, we're, we're not going to be here six or seven months. Well, I can't, I can't say that emphatically, but I don't think we will, okay? I would have to preach a sermon for every verse, okay? Uh, but I believe another big reason, I really believe this, I believe that another big reason that a lot of pastors won't touch the book of Philemon is because it seems at face value, it seems to condone slavery, and they don't want to have to deal with that issue. Well, we're going to deal with the issue, and then we're going to understand why it's nothing. We don't have anything to worry about here. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to tackle this issue of the Bible and slavery. And so, I, you know, as a pastor, obviously I love walking through books. We're going to talk theology. But I cannot think of a better opportunity to discuss this massive social issue that actually has been weaponized in this country. And so this is a great opportunity. That's what we're going to do. Um, Now, this is a really important subject, not just because of what's happened in the past, but it's important, number one, because a lot of people try to use this issue uh, to condemn both the Scriptures and Christianity. I cannot tell you how many times I've been handing out tracts or preaching on a college campus or an abortion clinic or maybe a, a gay pride event, And I've had people come up to me and say, I can't believe that you would support that God who condones slavery. And I always ask them, where do you condone slavery? And of course, they have these cherry-picked verses out of context. They have no idea what they're talking about. And we have to turn the tables on them. So it's important to be equipped to do that. If somebody brought that issue up to you, how would you defend that? I'm going to try to equip you to do that today. But, But this is also important too. I don't know if you realize this. This stat actually caught me off guard. Do you know that worldwide, 
There's actually over 27 million people still in slavery today. Now that counts people that are caught up in sex trafficking. Uh, It counts people that are prisoners of war. But uh, that's a lot of people, folks. Um, I think the whole state of Utah has less than 4 million people. You're talking about 27 million people worldwide that are still in some form of slavery. And so it's important, for those reasons, it's important to know how to stand up against all forms of injustice. But with that in mind, even though we're not going to dig deep into the text of Philemon today, I want to read it. It's just 25 short verses. I want to read it to you because I want you to see it from 30,000 feet and then we'll get into this issue today. But let's read it. Uh, The book of Philemon, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our uh, beloved Epiphia and Acrippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in the time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly." For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldest receive him forever. Now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If thou count me therefore a partaker, or a partner rather, excuse me, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand, I will repay it. Albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. But withal prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. There salute thee, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, and my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word and this time together. I just pray that you enter me as sin and self and fill me with your Holy Spirit as we're dealing with a very uh, controversial issue. And Lord, more than anything, we just want to honor Christ. We want to be true to the word, but we want to honor Christ. And I just pray that uh, that would be accomplished today, Lord. Maybe if there's one loss that you'd save them. If there's some that are struggling, you'd encourage them. But God, I pray we leave here more uh, bold and compassionate and more determined than ever to get the gospel to a lost and dying world. We give these things to you. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. So, when it comes to what the Bible teaches about slavery, 
There's some important things that I want to lay out as a foundation this morning just right off the bat. And you have to give me time to get them all out. Don't stop at the first one and gasp really big, okay? Let me get the whole thing out of here. But the first thing we need to know is that the Bible never expressly condemns the institution of slavery. Old Testament, New Testament, it just does not do that. But don't fall victim to the old argument from silence fallacy. Uh, Because in practice, Scripture condemns the mistreatment of human beings. Uh, For example, there's another great example. The Scripture never flat out condemns abortion. Uh, In fact, abortion obviously is a modern English word, right? Uh, But, I mean, it doesn't say, thou shalt not commit abortion. But in principle, it's very clear what God thinks about the matter. Uh, Proverbs 6 and verse 17 says that God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. It's pretty black and white there. Uh, Leviticus 18 and verse 21, he says, Thou shalt not let any of thy seed, talking about thy children, pass through the fire to Molech, neither shall thou profane the name of thy God, I am the Lord. In that day, uh, there were actually people that would throw their children into a fire to sacrifice unto the God Molech because... Their thinking was that if we commit such a great sacrifice, then Moloch has no choice but to bless us. So in other words, they said, if we sacrifice our children, we'll have a better life. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? And so he, he's very clear about that. He goes on to say in Leviticus 20 that if any parent sacrifices their children to Moloch, they should be put to death. Um, for those who try to make the claim that An unborn fetus is different than a child that's been born. Uh, God said, just there's many examples we could give, but just one Old Testament, one New Testament, and we'll get back on track here. But in the Old Testament, He told Jeremiah that He knew him from his mother's womb as an individual. Uh, In the New Testament, the Word of God said that John the Baptist was a babe in the womb. didn't say a cup of sails. It said the babe leaped for joy just being near the presence of Christ inside the womb of Mary. And so, there, listen, we all know what it is, folks. I mean, let's just be honest. And, and so, uh, even though it doesn't expressly forbid it, we can do just a little bit of deductive reasoning and know how he falls on the matter. And as we're going to see, the Bible condemns the mistreatment of people which removes the teeth from the institution of slavery. The second thing I want you to know is that the kind of slavery mentioned in Scripture is much different than the kind of slavery that happened here in America. Uh, We need to be careful not to be anachronistic when we read the Bible. And what I mean by that, an anachronism is when you take a modern, present-day meaning and you read it back into the context of history and believe that those people would have understood things the same way that we see and understand today, and that's just not right and it's not fair. And when Paul wrote in Philemon, and as we're going to see in the Old Testament and New Testament references to slavery, they were not thinking about the African slave trade in, modern, in colonial America. That was not on his mind. So we have to understand what Paul was talking about. And so um, I want you to know this. This is very important. The slavery that took place in America uh, would have been condemned by Scripture for at least three different reasons. I'll give you these really quick in passing. Number one, the slavery that took place in America was based almost solely on race. And that is completely condemned by Scripture. Uh, Genesis 1 verse 27 
It says that God created man in His own image. In the image of God created He Him, male and female created He them. You see, as humans, we're all made in the image of God. And that automatically gives us inherent, immediate value as people. We are all created in the image of God. I think about the children's song, Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. Now this means that unborn babies, the mentally handicapped, the elderly, and whatever race you may be, have just as much value as any other race, as the healthy, as the fully developed, and the able-minded and bodied. So we all have inherent value just for the mere fact that we're made in the image of God. Now, this flies directly in the face of this Darwinian worldview that's been pushed so hard for the last 150 years, where survival of the fittest is the law of the land, and one has to earn their right to live. And if you don't believe that, go back and look at the Nazis. Go back and look at Hitler. They were, they were immersed, they were saturated in Darwinianism and eugenics. They wanted to achieve the master race. Why? Because some people are more valuable than others. Uh, in 1939, Hitler authorized his doctors uh, to go into what was known as the T4 Project. And the T4 Project was to experiment and eliminate the mentally handicapped, the retarded, those that had some type of physical ailment or malady. And I'm going to quote what Hitler said about them. He said, they are life unworthy of life. That's what he said, In quote. And so you can only come to that conclusion if you don't believe that we have value because you don't believe that we were created in the image of God. When you get away from that, there's no limit. There's no boundaries. There's no way to determine who has more value than another except who's in charge. And in that case, might makes right. And so we have to understand that uh, the Bible would have condemned the kind of slavery that happened in America. Number two, another reason he condemns it, the Bible condemns slavery in America because of the way that the slave trade was conducted. This is very important. The Bible expressly forbids what is called man-stealing. That's exactly what slave traders do. And in fact, I want you to go to Exodus 21. I want you to see this. This would be a great verse to kind of put in the back of your mind if this issue ever comes up. Exodus 21. We'll go a few places today. I want you to see these things for yourself. Exodus 21 and verse 16. It says, And he that stealeth a man and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. Now, I'm not the brightest crayon in the box, but if you're looking for a verse in the Bible that condemns the kind of slavery that happened in America, this would have to be it. So if somebody tries to bring up to you that the Bible condones and doesn't condemn slavery, you tell them to look up Exodus 21.16 and tell them to have a nice day. Because if they had operated based on the laws of God the slave traders in both Africa and America would have been stoned to death. Now, I'm not a very bright guy, but I know it's, also, it's awful hard to buy and sell slaves when you're dead. So, 
There you go. That's how God feels about it. It would have been condemned uh, by the way that the slave trade was conducted. But also, just to give you a New Testament example, I won't turn here, but you can mark this down. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, Paul gives a, a list of wicked people. And within this list of wicked people, he puts slave traders in the same category as murderers, liars, and male prostitutes. Right there in the middle of all of them. That's how God feels about it. On the same par as murderers and homosexual prostitutes, that's how God feels about it. Um, And so it would have been condemned by the way that the slave trade was conducted. But number three, uh, the Bible condemns the kind of slavery that happened in America because of how the slaves were treated. Uh, Jesus said that the two great commandments are love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. That's Luke 10 and verse 27. And who can forget about the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That, uh, Jesus said that in Matthew 7 and verse 12. It's amazing how many people that I've run into along the way that have, have quoted and cited the golden rule who are as anti-Christ as you can possibly be. They had no clue that Jesus said that. <laughs> uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so the Bible would have condemned it by the way that the slaves were treated. There's no way that anyone could have justified the African slave trade based on what Scripture says. And to say otherwise is just intellectually dishonest. It's just, it's just a lie is what it is. Um, the slavery um, institution in the New Testament uh, was a totally different... In the Roman Empire, slavery was a totally different thing. We have to program our minds to understand this. But slavery was an economic institution that included all different classes and skill sets. You know, slaves could have included doctors, lawyers, merchants, farmers. Uh, Depending on whatever your trade was, you might be under a master in that situation. Um, Slaves in Rome during the writing of Philemon, now it wasn't always this good, but during the writing of Philemon in the New Testament times, uh, most slaves had legal rights. They had a legal right to a fair trial. They had the right to marry. They had the right to buy their freedom later on if they decided to do that. They had rights. Uh, in many cases, slavery was the only form of welfare that there was. Now, let me... This is where we have to get rid of our anachronisms. I, I want to try to put yourself in the mind of somebody at this time. Let's say that, you know, perhaps you're a very poor family. You... You have trouble feeding your children. You, do, you don't know where your next meal is coming from. The Romans, were, they weren't handing out government checks, okay? Social Security is not coming. You know, all the things that we know here. So what do you do? Well, you could, you could sell yourself into slavery under a master, and he would provide your housing, your clothing, your food, and um, eventually if you wanted to, you could buy your own freedom. And in many cases, if they had a good master, they would just choose to stay with him. And so it was, in that sense, it was a good thing. You could work and have all of your needs provided. It was much more like employment than what we think of being slavery. And so this is why you don't see Paul just jumping all over it as an institution. Uh, the worst thing we could do is conflate what we think about is slavery. Well, what Paul was talking about 2,000 years ago, we can't do that if we're going to be honest. And so that's what he was talking about. 
Um, in fact, it was just a way of life. You know, at one time, one-third of the Roman Empire was comprised of slaves. It was just a part of life. It was just, now, like I said, it was part of the economy. It was part of the welfare system. It, was just, it just was what it was. Um, now, these are the main reasons why the Bible didn't condemn it expressly as an institution, but it did, and it does, give clear instructions on how slaves were to be treated. While we're in the Old Testament, let's go over uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy 15, verse 12. It said, If thy brother and Hebrew man or Hebrew woman be sold unto thee, and serve thee six years, then in the seventh year thou shalt let him go free from thee. And when thou sendest him out free from thee, thou shalt not let him go away empty. Thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy flock, and out of thy floor, and out of thy winepress, of that wherewith the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, thou shalt give unto him... And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Therefore I command thee this thing today. And for the sake of time, I won't go through all this, but if you were to read the rest of the chapter, it would actually give the procedure for if this slave had served out his six years, if he wanted to remain under his master, uh, that he could do that. And so that's how it worked. Um, Let's let's look at some New Testament examples. Uh, Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6. I know I'm covering it a lot, and we are going to get some, to some application here, but I just really felt like this is important to see these things. <coughs> Ephesians 6, verses 8 and 9. It says, Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive the Lord, whether he be bond or free. I'm talking about slave or free. And you masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. So the Lord here, once again, He does not outright condemn the institution of slavery because we've already seen the differences here. Uh, how it was much more like employment. In fact, this would be a great verse for employers today. How to treat their employees. Not threatening, not, not being angry, not, uh, you know, in other words, respect them. Treat them with respect, treat them right. Uh, look at Colossians 4. Colossians 4. Once again, he speaks of masters. He says, masters, give unto your servants, which the word servant here is from the Greek doulos. It, it means slave. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So once again, we see clearly uh, that how they were supposed to be treated. And when you begin to take these things away, you take the teeth out of the institution. And, and now that we've dealt with this issue uh, of slavery, I want to take these last few minutes here And I want to ask the question, how do we as a church of the living God fight against injustice and create reform in society? I've got three things this morning and we'll be done. Um, I know it's somewhat of a long introduction. I'm not going to be long. But uh, number one 
if we're going to stand against any kind of injustice, individually or as a society, the first thing we're going to have to do is recognize what is just. We have to... Listen, if we're going to call out what's wrong in society, we have to know what's right. And we have to have a standard for that. Um, a, A society that has no concept of what is just and right also has no concept of what is wrong and unjust. We must uphold the Word of God as our transcendent standard of right and wrong, and otherwise we have absolutely nothing to stand on, and therefore we have no basis for change whatsoever. Now I want to ask you a question. How do you think this postmodern, humanistic, moral, relativistic society, how do you think they could stand against things like slavery, like the Holocaust, like abortion? They couldn't do it. Because the best they've got, if they've forsaken the standard of God's Word, the best they've got is an opinion. Well, I don't think you ought to be gassing those Jews. Why not? I don't know. It just seems like a mean thing to do. I mean, you won't want that to happen. Well, who cares? I'm in charge and they're not. Well, I just think you're being a big meanie. That's about the most you could say about that. What we have to do is take the Word of God where it says, Thou shalt not kill. That's got a little more authority to it, doesn't it? Or we could take them to several of the verses we've seen today. Um, we, we have to raise up a standard. That standard is the Word of God. Uh, we need to stand flat-footed and boldly and compassionately proclaim that God hates the hands that shed innocent blood, that God created them male and female, that it's an abomination for men to have sex with men and for women to have sex with women. Uh, We need to raise up a standard and tell them that it's also appointed unto man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. We need to call out the the sins of our nation. I could name several of them, but there's some that go straight to the top with the battles we're facing today. Uh, That being homosexuality, this transgenderism, uh, the abuse of children. By the way, that that, that is child abuse, by the way. I mean, we're doing these assignment, uh, gender reassignment surgeries to kids that aren't even 10 yet. God, help us. God, help this nation. You know, the sins of a society always negatively affect people. Think about abortion, sex trafficking. We could go on and on. But all of these sins hurt individuals and they destroy the family unit, which is the bedrock of society. You cannot stand against injustice if you don't have a healthy sense of what justice is. (laughs) And you all know me, I've shared these types of stories, but the most tickled I ever get when I'm doing any kind of outreach, open air, whatever the case may be, (laughs) is when people come to me and they say things like I mentioned earlier about, you know, the Bible uh, condoning... uh, Slavery, or sometimes I've heard them say it condones rape, which is nonsense. Um, They take one verse out of Deuteronomy completely out of context. If they would just read a few verses later, it would clear everything up for them. And and my immediate response is, well, what's wrong with rape? What's wrong with slavery? And they look at me like... And I say, no, no, no. I'm not saying those things aren't wrong. I'm just saying, how do you account for that? By what standard are they wrong? Because the rapist doesn't think anything is wrong with rape. He thinks it's good. 
So now we have two people with differing opinions. Who's right? This is the only way to know, folks. If you get rid of this, you're reduced to absurdity. You have nothing left to stand on but quicksand. Nothing. That's why if you noticed, you know, sometimes it's amazing to think it's only been seven years ago since so-called same-sex marriage was legalized in this country. What's happened since then? The whole transgenderism movement. And now the new thing is they're trying to make pedophilia normal. You think I'm crazy? Y'all just, just, just stay tuned, okay? It's coming. That's what all this, you know, drag queen nonsense and all these, uh, you know, readings they're doing at the library for children. It's, it's grooming is what it is. I mean, I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. And you say, well, why is that? Because if you don't have a standard, you don't have a standard. Listen, you can't say that pedophilia is wrong. You can't say that homosexuality is wrong. You can't say that bestiality is wrong. You can't say that incest is wrong. I don't care how strongly you feel about it. You have no standard by which to say that is wrong unless you say that God said. <laughs> That's it. And by the way, I know what's right too. One marriage between one man, one woman, one lifetime is God's plan. And by the way, society is a lot better off when it's like that. So we have to recognize what is just. I've got to move quickly. Number two, how we can enact uh, justice and reform in society. Not only recognize what is just, we have to reach others with the gospel. Now let me say this. Nowhere in Scripture will you find anything about boycotts, about uh, protest, about voting, etc. Now, I'm going to pause right there. All those things have their place. Don't misunderstand me. But that is not God's plan for reform in society. It's just not. You know what His plan is? Preach the gospel to every creature. That's His plan. That's what changes hearts. That's what changes societies. The death the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sin. That is the gospel. That's the message that changes. The gospel is the power of God and salvation to all them that believe. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what sets men and women free. Um, you, listen, if a sex trafficker gets saved by the grace of God, he won't be a sex trafficker anymore. In fact, he'll fight against it. Uh, if a homosexual gets saved by the grace of God... They'll be a homo nomo. God will change them. If an abortion doctor gets saved by the grace of God, he won't be aborting babies anymore. Um, if, a, if a slave trader gets saved, he'll no longer be a slave trader. And I can't help but think about John Newton. John Newton wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. And John Newton at one time was a slave trader. He was a scoundrel. I've read stories about him. He was so ice cold that when he was on the ship that was taking slaves to America, you know, it was such horrible conditions, not all the slaves made the trip. And he would actually sleep. He would use some of their dead bodies for a pillow. That's how cold he was. And God saved him by His grace. And not only did he stop being a slave trader, but he became a staunch abolitionist. So when he sings about amazing grace, you know what God saved him from. <laughs> we ought to sing that when we get out of here. And um, so, yeah, that's the way the gospel works. 
Uh, we're commanded to go out in the highways and hedges and preach the gospel. Listen, you can't change hearts with boycotts. You can't change hearts at the voting booth. You can't change hearts with protest. You have to preach the gospel. And even if you're not a preacher, you've been called to be a reacher to those that are around you. Martin Vincent said, the principles of the gospel, talking about the specific issue of slavery here, he said the principles of the gospel not only curtailed slavery's abuses, but destroyed the thing itself, for it could not exist without its abuses. To destroy its abuses was to destroy slavery itself. That's why I say, listen, they didn't have to call out slavery because by preaching the gospel and the principles that accompany that, they knew it was going to destroy it anyway, and it did, both in Rome and in this country. It was Christians that led that charge. And anybody else that would say something different needs to crack open a history book somewhere. The atheist has no reason to stand up for the slave. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. We don't have value. Lightning struck a mud puddle billions of years ago. We're here with just an accident. Who cares? Only the Christian can account for a worldview where all humans have dignity and worth and value. So we must preach the gospel. That's it. Well, thirdly, and I'm done, if we're going to enact justice and reform in society, we're going to not only have to reach them with the gospel, but we're going to have to relieve the suffering of those who are afflicted. I think about Galatians 6.1, what we just got through a few weeks ago. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Listen, societal change happens slowly. And until that change comes, we must attempt to help the afflicted. Um, Now, we can get in a ditch on either side of this where it's only either or, but I've always liked the both-and approach. Perfect example. We just did the Walk for Life uh, to support this uh, Center for Pregnancy Choices. Very gospel-centered, pro-life pregnancy center that helps women who think they don't have an option. That's great. That's good. That's wonderful. I, I, I mentioned when I was there, I'm alive in part because of an organization like that. My mother got pregnant with me when she was a teenager. And through an organization like that, she was able to give me up for adoption. And now I have the gift of life. But listen, we don't need to stop there. We don't just need to help those who may somehow be a victim to it. We need to preach against the wickedness of it. That's why I have no problem doing both. That's not just our only obligation. I wish the abortion clinic was close. You know, they're still killing babies in Utah. I hope you know that. Them overturning Roe v. Wade did nothing because we got a bunch of uh, spineless jellyfish in office in this state. I don't know if you realize that or not. They stopped it in Alabama. They're still doing it over here because we got judges that don't know how to read the law and they don't have a backbone to do anything about it. And I have no problem going to the abortion clinic and preaching. I wish it was closer. Um, but we need to do that. We need to do that. Listen, I know that, that we tend to paint everybody a victim to this, but listen, I can't tell you how many women came up to me and cussed me out and told me it didn't matter. Their baby was going to heaven anyway. I mean, at least they're honest. I mean, let's, let's be real, folks. Uh, I, I mean, I want you to understand too because I'm passionate about this issue. But, I, you know, even for the women that commit abortions, I hate it for them. I've seen what it does to them. I've seen the horror. I've seen the drug abuse. I've seen the guilt. I've seen the shame. 
And I want them to know, hey, there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? But the reason that I hate it is because of the destruction that comes with it to every party that's involved. And we need to call it out from the rooftops. It's wickedness and it's going to bring the judgment of God on this nation. God help us. We have to relieve the suffering of those that are afflicted. That, that's just one way by supporting something like pregnancy choices. Meanwhile, it still goes on. So we have to have, you know, look at things on all fronts. And I'll close with this example. One of my favorite theologians, one of my favorite characters in history has to be Jonathan Edwards. Most people remember him from the Great Awakening, uh, the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I remember studying that in a secular public school. But when I look at him, you know, he, was, he lived during the issue of slavery in this country it, it, when it, it was at its peak. This was way before the Civil War. And he had a biblical sense of justice. He preached the gospel, and he did what he could to ease the suffering of the slaves. Now, here's something I want to tell you. This is how we get messed up if we don't do our research. But uh, people also like to try to destroy the character of Jonathan Edwards because he owned slaves. Now, if I told you that Jonathan Edwards was a scoundrel, he owned slaves, y'all never read anything he wrote, he's probably burning in hell, you would leave here and probably believe that, right? But let's, have, let, let's do a little deductive reasoning. Why would a man of his caliber own slaves? Could it possibly have been for a noble reason? If you can't think of any, I'm about to give you some. So Edwards bought slaves in order to care for them. Um... He tried to keep the families together if possible. There were times where he may have bought one slave and he realized that one of his neighbors had bought a family member. He went and bought the family member. He taught them to read. He made them communicate members of his church. That was unheard of in that day. He, uh, now listen, even liberal Yale University. See, Jonathan Edwards graduated from Yale back hundreds of years ago when they actually taught the Bible. Uh, but now it's just a bastion for liberal theology. Even Yale University wrote an article just this year defending Jonathan Edwards on these points. I got some quotes from here. See, Edwards saw buying slave as, quote, as a means of civilizing and evangelizing them. Are you kidding me? I want to buy these slaves so I can help them, love them, teach them how to read, and share the gospel with them. Wow. Because you've you got to understand, this is the reality that he was living in. That was his world. I realize that we don't live in that world, but he did. So in his shoes, what does he do right now, given that situation? Um, he, and by the way, he also, while he was buying slaves, he cried out against the sin of racism. That He said that humanity was, quote, of one blood. He also cried out against the slave trading, stating that it was, quote, wrong to disenfranchise those who had been born free. And by the way, his son, Jonathan Edwards Jr., and his apprentice, Samuel Hopkins, were known as some of the most vocal abolitionists of their day. The times were beginning to change. And so I think you see where we're going with this. That's what he could do given the circumstances he was in. Even though a lot of people throw rocks at him today, they just don't do their research. Uh, in conclusion, I think we've seen that slavery in Roman times uh, were nothing like that of the slave trade in America, that Scripture clearly condemns such a thing. We've also seen what it takes to evoke change in society. 
Uh, we need to recognize what justice is. We need to reach the world with the gospel. And we need to relieve the suffering of those who are afflicted by the present situation. Um, we must stand against injustice even when it doesn't seem to affect us. Um, I want to share this, and I really am done. I've said that once, but I'm not lying this time. You know, I'll tell, tell you what the problem is with most people in general, is they never get bothered by something until it affects them. And then all of a sudden, oh, we can't have that. See, we, we, we can't stand for justice and righteousness when it comes to somebody else. But all of a sudden, when it inconveniences us, oh, we go, hey, we're going to party like it's 1776 all of a sudden. But here's what happens when you do that. Uh, Martin Neimoller was a friend of Dietrich Bonhoeffer back during uh, the reign of, of Hitler. And Neimoller was also a pastor. But Neimoller did not see Hitler for who he was until well after the mask had come off. Whereas Bonhoeffer, he was fighting against Hitler 10 years before the war happened. Neimoller, he didn't quite get it. He supported Hitler for a long time. And here's what he said. Neimoller eventually came around and recognized what was going on. And he actually got in the pulpit, preached the gospel, and then preached against Hitler. And before he was done, they were taking him out in cuffs. And here's what he said. I love this. Neimoller said this. First, they came for the socialists. And I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. We can't wait. We've got to stand for righteousness because it's right. And so I understand this had... The sad part about this is, This has nothing to do with the text that we're going to see in the coming weeks. But it has everything to do with what society would think about this. Hey, we just read straight through it. I I don't like ignoring things. I want to hit it straight on. I think you've seen clearly from the Scriptures where God stands on the issue. And so we need to stand for what's just and right, even before it affects us, because it's the right thing to do. Would you stand as she comes? Lord, we love you. Lord, we just thank you for who you are.